The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to another installment of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine and the professionals whose work filled its pages. This time around, we are thrilled to be talking to a contributor to the Guide to Comics who added an extra level of fun to the publication each month between the covers and in the poly bag. He's an illustrator and cartoonist that certainly left his mark on 90s comic book fans. It is our pleasure to welcome Brian Douglas Ahern. That introduction is marvelous. Thank you so very much. It's, it always astounds me when people even remember my cartoons, much less you know know what they were. And I had the privilege earlier because you sent me the link of you know here's here's our web page and here's where you can listen to stuff. And so I'm scrolling through and it's like okay, not that one, not that one, not that one. Oh, I want to do that one later. Andrew Carden. Boop. And I listened to that one. And I got to tell you, one of the first things it was a joy to hear his voice again because I hadn't talked to him in so very very long and my jaw hit the floor when he mentioned working with me. And I thought, oh my God, he remembers that as fondly as I do. So I was just absolutely over the moon, especially oh. with the piece he mentioned, that Fun Factory piece. I photocopied my work before sending it in and I still have all those illustrations in my folders. Oh, that is so great to hear. Yeah, it, it, like I say, every time that we post your comics or your calendars, whatever they were, people are just like, oh, I love that guy's work. I wish I was seeing more of it all over. So we'll get to that, that soon just, enough. That just yeah. blows me away. It's like, <laughs> it's like the old phrase, a man is never a hero in his own hometown. When I would tell people I worked as professionally as a cartoonist, a lot of people thought I was unemployed and I was just like sucking off my parents or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, he's living in their basement while they're in Florida, the miserable, they, they probably don't even know he's there, you know. And I remember when I would mention that I work professionally as a cartoonist, it would just blow their suburban minds. They had no idea what that meant. I mean, because if, if your lights didn't come on in your house at 530, you weren't coming in at quarter to seven to the sound of the factory whistle and then home mowing your lawn at 330, you were unemployed and that's all there was to it. And my lawn looked like shit anyway. So that was proof for him. And when I would tell, I remember this uh, kind of busybody neighbor. And I mentioned that I worked as a cartoonist and I, I did artwork for a living. And you could just see her eyes bug out in her head, like a, like a Tex Avery cartoon. And for the longest time, we had a newspaper. All of the print has since given way to, you know, internet stuff. Ours was the Muskegon Chronicle. And she just went, well, I, yeah, for the Chronicle? And she just couldn't <laughs> process and then when I tried to mention that, you know, one of, one of my major clients is in Congress, New York, it just made you no know, sense to her. But you're living here. You know, she just, she could not wrap her little chickpea-sized brain around it. And I remember talking to another neighbor, sweet, sweet, sweet old man. We got to talking about work and I mentioned having to, you know, sort something out with my editor and had to go through the publisher. And he just kept looking at me really, really funny. And when I stopped talking, he said, what, you, you, you have a job? It no, no concept. And I said, where do you think I'm going every single week with those giant FedEx boxes under my arm? Well, I don't know. It just, it was, it was outside their realm of possibility. So it didn't make any sense to them. And it's great to know, you know, you hit the big time, even though they couldn't comprehend the scope of it. <laughs> so we have to ask, Brian, what came first though? Your love of cartoons or your love of comic books? I actually had never thought about it critically until this interview. 
And I'd have to say it had to be cartoons because when I was a little kid, you know, you watch Bugs Bunny when you get home from school and the Bugs Bunny Daffy show on Saturday morning. And the one for me, um, some people talk about when they find their calling, you know, I was in college or I was 30 or whatever it was. I was like four. And when my older siblings were getting ready to go off to first grade and kindergarten or whatever, my mom and dad stuck me in front of the TV and clicked it on. And oh, my God, when criminals in this world appear and break the laws that they should fear, underdog. And I was just like, oh, my God, he was my hero. He was I have a framed photo of underdog on my wall in this video to this day. And I, I swear, by the time I was five, I was like, this will be my life. You know, I just the fact that here's this amazing character, because I didn't even know who Superman was yet. And this amazing character with superhuman powers, who was using them to help people. You know, and, and they were the perfect archetypes of the of the heroes and the villains. He was so incredibly romanticized. He spoke in rhyme, you know, you know, when Polly's in trouble, I am not so, you know, the whole thing with Wally Cox's amazing voice. And it was the first thing that introduced me to the concept of the mad scientist and the thug that was, you know, his his henchman with uh, Simon Bar Sinister and Cat, you know, and it just resonated with, hmm, can we will use our device to suck up all the oceans in the world? <laughs> I loved that, so I just gobbled it up. And then from there, I wound up discovering those uh, reruns of the 1960s Spider-Man cartoon, you know, where they lopped most of the webs off his costume. I still don't know why they did that, but that was my discovery of Spider-Man. And then, of course, he showed up in Spidey Super Stories on Electric Company, which I watched with my younger brother. Yep. And it, of course, led to the fact that the very first comic book I ever purchased when I was a boy was Amazing Spider-Man 186. I still have that same copy. It's dilapidated and falling apart and it has holes in it and everything like this, but I'm never going to get rid of it because that was my very first Spider-Man comic book. And from there, I just branched out. When I was in high school, I only read like five comics faithfully and they were, and that's my dog watching people walk by the door. I'm going to close the door to my studio here. Um, <laughs> and incidentally, his name is Snapper Carr. Hey! <laughs> I'm working on a novel that starts with when I adopted my first dog, Misty Knight, and it takes me <laughs> all the way to when Snapper was dumped on my I mean, do, do you have a cat named Rick Jones? Like, what are we no, doing? No, 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 no. My mom was the cat person. I thought I was a cat person growing up because my, my mom and dad always kept cats, but it wasn't until I was uh, I was watching some friends' dogs when they were out of town, and I was like, this is it. This is it. This is for me. I'm a dog man. Then I went looking for the perfect dog, and it had to be a male, white, sled dog breed, so I could name him Manwolf, because Manwolf is the single coolest comic book werewolf in existence. I figured I want to start with Manwolf. I don't want to jump right into calling him Star God, because that would be a little presumptuous. <laughs> and for fun, I could call him Johnny you know, John Jameson, you know, the yeah, asteroid. So I was going to say, did, had, did you get him a little crystal to carry around? I had color? it all worked out. It was going to be a green collar and the license was going to be red. So it would look like the moonstone. <laughs> there was no man wolf. I went crazy trying to find this dog. I was looking for uh, Siberian Huskies and Malamutes and Samoyeds and American Eskimos. Nothing, 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 nothing worked. Nothing worked. So I went to the Humane Society just to look. <laughs> If you're determined to get a dog, don't go to the Humane Society or the Pound just to look because you will leave with a family member. And this little bitty puppy, complete opposite, female, black lab mix. She was like two months old, just captured my heart, just completely. I just fell in love with this pup. 
instantly and vice versa. And um, I thought, well, I can't call her man wolf. She's female. That would be dumb. You know, so I started thinking. Then I just, it popped into my head. I immediately thought of that magnificent private detective, one of the daughters of the dragon with a bionic arm, iron fists, love interest, Misty Knight. And I thought, Misty. And I adopted Misty Knight and had her for 13 and a half years. That is amazing. I love how deep it all runs. You mentioned there were five books that you were reading. Yes, sorry. We're getting dedicated to talking about the dogs and we'll never do anything else. (laughs) It was Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, which I absolutely adored her, Rom Space Knight, Moon Knight, back when it was brand spanking new, and it was all Bill Sienkiewicz work, and Marvel Tales, because I wanted to catch up on the history of Amazing Spider-Man. It was in Marvel Tales that I read about the death of Gwen Stacy. And even though I was quite young and I didn't know the character that well, because I'd buy the little pocket books too. There were the like the microscopic reprints of the early Spider-Man and I read all of those. I remember where I was. I remember what time of day. I remember what chair I was sitting in the living room when we realized that Gwen was dead. And it, oh my God, I think I was like 11, 12. And it was like a stake in my freaking heart. And it's just like, no, this is, this is Spider-Man. He rescues everybody. And of course, the thing I still hold to this theory, the goblin sent her over the bridge and he webbed her by the leg. And there's a tiny sound effect as her head flips back and it says, snap, he broke her neck. He didn't mean to, but he broke her neck. And I think it was, I want to say it was Jim Shooter, but it was one of the big wig editors who later said, no, this is too dark. This is, we can't, we can't do this. And a lot of fans were like, no, this, that's part of the tragedy. You know, he thought he was saving her and he didn't. He killed her. Like, no, 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 no. And the reason was the lamest in the world. It was the shock of the sudden fall that killed. She was unconscious, dumbass. How could she go into shock? She didn't even know what was going on. (laughs) Plus, Gwen Stacy, one of the most formidable characters, she wouldn't go into shock. She might go, oh, crap, but she wouldn't go into shock. And so I thought, okay, if you're going to rewrite it, this is the one I'm going to go with. The goblin is riding this pointy-ass metal bat glider. And how did he send her off? smashed into her spine. That's how he sent her off. So I believe he broke her back. That's how she died. Spidey did break her neck, but she was dead already. Hey, there you go. The fan theories, you got to stick to them. That was was how I lived with it. But when I was a little kid and I saw that little sound effect, snap, even like 11 or 12, I knew what it meant. I knew. And he pulled her up and, oh, spider powers, I love you. And then he couldn't wake her up. And he waves his fist at the sky, screaming at the goblin. They said, now we can finally tell you the title the night when Stacy died. And oh my God, I got chills right now because I remember what it was like yeah. before reading that. It just, these comics had such a magnificent, extraordinary impact on us. But those were the five I read when I was a boy. Those are great. Now, I'm curious also, so obviously you're in front of the TV watching some cartoons and things <laughs> like that. But were you drawing in an early age too? Did you have any formal art well, training As soon ultimately? as I was able to grip a crayon, the minute I could grip a crayon, uh, it was a thing that they used to have these newsprint pads they were i think they were like 11 by 17 and they had a a scribbly looking owl on the front dragging a crayon across and it was like a red and a blue stripe or whatever i'm not sure if you remember those but they were just called scribble pads and my mom would always get me the scribble pad and i had the crayon box of 64 with the sharpener in the back that didn't work and everything and i was perpetually drawing i filled those things like crazy And the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman were huge when I was a kid. And we never missed an episode. Mom even had, she had the shorthand for it where she would say, okay, the man's on. Get your pajamas on. We're going to watch the man. You know, she never (laughs) said Six Million Dollar Man. I couldn't draw people. I was too little. And every time I drew them, they looked silly. 
And so I decided I can draw animals. So I created the $6 million mole who looked nothing like a mole, looked nothing like a mole. He came out looking like a donkey. But I just filled pages after pages after pages of the $6 million mole. And then the Bionic Woman came on and who didn't fall in love with Lindsay Wagner. I mean, oh, my God. Between her and, and, and Linda Carter, I mean, that was it. I mean, one of the joys was being a kid in the 70s. I grew up surrounded by heroines. And, you know, it's real easy to say I love Spider-Man and I saw the reruns of the George Wee Superman. And then it led to, you know, 1979. I'm just a little kid. And we went to see Superman on the big screen with Christopher Reeve and it was life changing and everything. But when I was little, oh, my God, Wonder Woman, the Bionic Woman, Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, Isis. I mean, so it it was just normal for me to see the women as much of the heroes as the men. And whenever there was a story, and I'm like a little kid, I'm like eight, nine at this point, when the women is held hostage and yelling for help, I thought, oh, come on, she could get out of there. This is insulting. And I'm just this little kid. <laughs> it's just like, I don't care if she doesn't have superpowers. Figure out the knot, woman. You know, I just, I couldn't stand. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. when you have Charlie's Angels on TV is like the biggest thing going. And then like, yeah, there's some type of damsel in distress. You're like, no, no. Oh my gosh, yes. So yeah. I, I never liked the damsel in distress idea, which is one of the reasons I adored Wonder Woman and the way Invisible Woman, first Invisible Girl, of course, when I was a kid, it was Invisible Girl, was handled in the FF. She was, I, I want to say it was John Byrne, but somebody revealed that, yes, she was the single most powerful member. We thought it was the thing, but it wasn't. It was her. It was her the whole time. You know, I loved that. Oh, I just, nom, 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 nom. I just ate that up with a spoon. Well, and so talk about John Byrne, Fantastic Four in the 80s, but then moving into the 90s, what was your relationship with comics oh, in that early part of the wow. decade? Is, isn't that a whole adventure in itself? So uh, I graduated from art school in uh, 1991. So now I'm looking at comics from a whole different viewpoint than I was as a little kid. As a little kid, it's like, I want to read Spider-Woman or I want to read you know, Spider-Man. And I didn't know who was drawing or writing it when I was little. I didn't care. I just wanted to see what was going to happen next. Well, now I have all these interests and these incredible talents, the writers and the artists and everything like this. Now, one of the things I did was what everybody did right out of college who wanted to go to comics. You went to a comic convention with your portfolio and you're trying to get a job, which bombed horribly. It was, <laughs> it was absolutely terrible. In fact, there, there are some professionals I've met that when I was just a kid, I was like 24 at the time, and um, I still love their work. Brilliant, brilliant creators. But you could not pay me to sit alone in a room with them because I saw the way they treated fans and the wannabes who came up and showed their work. And some of them were wonderful. Danny Fingeroth was a joy. I got to talk to him. I don't remember the name of the representative from Kitchen Sink, but he was he treated me like an equal, like a professional. And he talked through, OK, this works. And I would recommend you focus on that. And then there was a, an artist, um, like I said, whose work I still admire. He's very, very prolific, but he was a dick. And it's nope. Nope, 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 nope. Never going to forget this. But it led to me drawing a cartoon about how difficult it was going through the portfolio room. And it was great. I vented. I got it all out of my system. And when I was in college, I would send my best buddy, Paul, who was going to business school in another city, I would send him letters of myself. And I would draw him a full page cartoon every time I sent him a letter. So it was just that. It was like a letter to Paul. And then I thought, well, what the hell do I do with this? That piss on it. Send it to the comics buyers guy. That's how I got my first job. Wow. That's awesome. Yep. Don Thompson saw it. And that was the end of that. I was, I had a job. And then I was able to focus on the comics I loved at the time and reference them 
or have my character Bumpkin Buzz, a self-parody, crow about them in the strip. Like, oh my God, Nexus and Tom Grummet's Superboy and Miracle Man and oh my stars. It just, it, there are so many. Mark Wade's The Flash, Spider-Man 2099. And it was a whole new world. Comics were an entirely new world. And then along came Marvels and Kingdom Come and all these amazing things. So, so I'm assuming that the Comic Spires Guide is going to play into the stepping stone of working at Wizard. But before you made it to interact with the Guide to Comics, had you picked up an issue to read? Were you a Wizard reader on a monthly basis? No, I wasn't. I'd seen them and I'd flipped through them, but I'd never purchased one. And I'm not sure exactly why. It was just a case of I knew who they were. I knew they were a force to be reckoned with. And I knew they were the cool new thing. And I knew several editors that the at cbg would be like we 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 have no competition no 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 and at the same time you could hear their knees knocking at the same time and i never really delved into it i don't know why but i knew exactly who they were and as a, as a matter of fact i was and i think andrew mentions this too i know he did i was at an artist's alley and uh, at this point i'd been doing bump and buzz for like three or four years and so people would come up and they knew me not many but there'd be two or three people who I saw, these delightful couple, Scott and Heidi. Oh, hi, good to see you again. You know, another person would, can you draw me another insect individual? That was my Spider-Man parody. And along comes this really nice guy, very businesslike, very courteous, very professional. And lucky enough, we had a moment alone together where there was no one else around. And he said, I just wanted to come up and tell you how much I enjoy your work. I think you do a great job. It was Andrew Carden. That was how I met Andrew Carden. And he said he was with Wizard and such. And I had an idea in the back of my head that wouldn't work for Bumpkin Buzz, but I knew it would work in a setting like Wizard, in a, you know, in a publication like that. And I said, would you guys be interested in a strip that kind of makes fun of Spawn? And he just, his eyes just lit up and he had the most beautiful smile. And he said, we are interested in strips that make fun of anything. <laughs> and, and we swapped business cards. And that was my first encounter with Andrew. That is fantastic. Wow. So from that first meeting, what was the process? Were they courting you? Were you sending in your ideas for the Spawn parody? How did it all come together? That is such a story. That is quite an adventure. At the time, I never thought I'd see Andrew again. I, I hadn't even thought about it. But money was getting tight. CBG paid diddly over squat. I mean, the, the pay rate was awful. I mean, try to imagine in the 90s, you've got rent, you've got utilities, you've got groceries, you've got art supplies, and you're getting $60 a week because mm. that's how much I got for a strip. And, and originally it was 40. And then I was talking to Don Thompson and he's like, that's not enough for you. Don was, God, I miss him so much. He was the most wonderful human being you'd ever want to meet in your life. And at this point, we had lost Don. We, he passed away, I think in 94 it was, and he just left an aching hole in everyone's heart. And it was just a case where this is not going to work anymore. I've, I've got to bring in some more money. And the only people I knew with connections were the people at the Comic Spires Guide. And so I called one of my editors, and I'm not going to name this editor, don't ask me. And uh, I left a message on their answering machine. And I left a message saying, hey, I, I need income here. You know, and it's great that I'm doing Bunk and Buzz. I love that opportunity. Anything you've got, send my way. I will do spot illustrations. I will do humor strips. I will help design logos. If you know anyone in the field who's looking for someone to fill in, give me a call. You know, I'm just putting this out there, make sure that, you know, they know I'm looking for the work and I'm, I'm more than eager to pitch in wherever. So when I spoke to that editor again, and I can't remember if they called me or if I called them, but I remember being on the phone and it was a very, very significant emotional moment in my life. This was someone who I looked upon not only as a mentor, but I'd come to think of that editor as a friend. And we had a very, very friendly relationship. And so it blew me away when I said, did you get my message on your answering machine? 
And the answer came back, yes, yes, yes. We got your whiny, pathetic, insipid, little, oh, message, begging and whining. You know, I played it for everyone in the office. And I'm like, what? Why? And, you know, we all sat down and talked about it. And, you know, Briz, um, we've decided it's time for you to get a real job. Wow. I shit you not. It was like, oh my God. It was like ice pick to the gut. I'm like, where is this coming from? And it was so snotty and it was so mean. It was like, this was someone that I really admired and looked at as a friend. So I hung up on them. I mean, at the end of the call, I didn't go rah or anything up. <laughs> but at the end of the call, I thought, okay. And I know it was December because I then uh, went down to Florida, probably on my parents' dime. But I flew down to Florida to spend Christmas with my folks. And uh, I figured I'm going to come back and, you know, work at the grocery store or Wendy's or something like this. And so I come back, you know, still feeling very forlorn. And my parents like, oh, no, no, you're going to be okay. And I come home to the light blinking on my answering machine. And I click play. Uh, hey, Brian, this is Scott Gramling. I uh, I work with Wizard, uh, the comics magazine. I got your card from Andrew, and we're thinking of a new project we think you would be perfect for. If you're interested, could you give me a call back? It was the very first Wizard superhero calendar. Wow. And it was like, if that if that took place in a movie or a novel, you wouldn't believe it. You'd be no. like, that's too convenient. There's no way that could have happened. And they were everything professionally. They were everything professionally. The Comics Buyer's Guide was not. They they gave me the whole concept that like, we want to do this calendar. It'll be a fold out. There'll be like a poster on the other side. And they said, can, can you do this? And I said, I'd, I'd be delighted to do it. And the first one I will never forget was April, 1996. So first thing I did, I drew a great shot of the fool killer from Marvel shooting his ray gun. It's, ah, it's April Fool's Day. Ah, you fool. You know? <laughs> And I went through my collection, anything that was covered dated April. And I just started digging and digging and digging. And I was fortunate enough to have a wonderful friend. I've fallen out of touch with him, which is a shame. And he ran a wonderful comic shop way up to the tippy top of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan called Comics North. And his name was Dave Elliott. Well, I imagine it's still Dave Elliott. But Dave was a living encyclopedia of comic book and Hollywood knowledge. It was astounding. And he'd send me stuff like, hey, did you know that, you know, in April, the 1977 Spider-Man TV show with Nicholas Hammond first premiered? And I'm like, oh my God, when? And so he would send me, just scribble down on yellow steno pad and he'd pop it in the mail and he'd mail it to me. And so I ended up sending this list and this became the, the system. I would do the research and I'd send the list but it was the editors who would go through it and say, we like this. We like this. Don't, 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 don't do that. We'll save that for another time. I like this. Don't do this. Definitely do this. And then I would take their list and I'd run with it. And I sent it in. And all, the whole time I'm very, very nervous. I'm just thinking this looks nothing like anything I've seen in their pages before. This is not Jim Lee. This is not Todd McFarlane. This is Bumpkin Buzz. I, I don't know. They're probably going to say, oh, I thought I would like this, but I don't. Be gone. You know, you know how you do. You think I'm not going to get this job. You know, in the back of your mind, you're like chorus line. God, I hope I get it. You know, and. <laughs> And um, not only did Scott call me immediately upon receiving it, gushing with praise about it, he gave me a $150 bonus. He said, this exceeds what we expected so much. We were going to give you $300 for paying you $450. And I was just, excuse me, what? Do you have the right number? I mean, what's going on here? Then, and this again, this is what it was like working with these people at Wizard. I get this massive package in the mail within the next month. They had framed, mounted, and put under glass the original color print from the printers with a handwritten note from Scott 
thanking me and praising me. And that thing hung on my wall for years. And they, wow. they did stuff like that. They did stuff like that. And then what began to happen, I'm told afterwards, I found out the various editors were beginning to lean over one another's cubicles or pass by their desk and be like, what's that? Who's doing that? Do you have his number? And the next thing you know, I'm doing everything and I'm loving it. And somebody, I can't remember if this was Andrew or if this was Tom. I, I can't remember his last name. I want to say it was Tom Slazuski. He was the editor and uh, pretty much the, the master behind the controls of Inquest Gamer. And one of them called me and said, hey, you know those Where's Waldo things? He says, oh yeah, yeah, everyone knows about that. He says, we want to do something where it's a double page spread of a magic the gathering convention and it's just filled with all these kind of items whether it's the you know the black lotus or the rabid wombat or whatever and we want to fill the whole thing with this big convention crowd but we want to hide all these items so that people have to go through and find like there's like 60 65 items in this one is that something you'd be interested in and all i thought my brain was like are you out of your mind you can't do anything like that that is beyond anything you've ever done the perspective the detail holy you can't do that but what came out of my mouth was, oh, wow, that sounds like fun. Send me the specs. <laughs> so so I, I get the specs and I'm like, what the hell have I done to myself? I, ca I can't do this. This is so far beyond my abilities. And then I thought, sharpen the pencil. You've got to cash the check your mouth just wrote, dude. When it was finished, I was very happy with it. And I thought, God, let them like this. Because I could see problems with it. I said, like, the perspective's not exactly right. And I'm not sure if the size is good on that. Is that likeness good enough? I don't know. And I sent it off to him. And I think Andrew told me this story. Because somebody called me and told me that they opened the FedEx box. Because I had to press them flat and slide them in and seal and put, you know, do not bend all over it. And sent that off to Congress. And the editor, and like I said, I don't know if it was Tom or if it was Scott. But I was told later that they opened the package peeled back the, the tracing paper cover and started hopping around, ran into the hallway or some open space, waving it over their heads. And I'm told, Brian Ahern is a f***ing genius! <laughs> and I was like, no, you're making that up. That didn't happen. Like, no, I swear to God, he was running up and down the hall waving it. It was ridiculous. And it turns out that the scavenger hunts became one of my trademarks. I did tons of them. And at first it's like, oh my God, I got to do this again. Can I do this again? And then pretty much it was, oh, give me the list, baby. I got this. You know? And there are a bunch. I remember Toy Man's Garage Sale. Yeah. great You one. did one for Sci-Fi Invasion even? Like yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, my God. Okay, get this. This is another example of what it was like to work with the wizard editors. So I had a couple toy catalogs and stuff. And this was before internet. I couldn't go online and Google search. There wasn't even a Google. There wasn't even a hot bot yet. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, we got to do the garage sale. And there's a lot of toys I'd never heard of. Some of them I could fake. Like, you know, Mike Allred's Madman Ragdoll. Come on, I can pull that off. And this massive box arrives. I mean, like small refrigerator box arrives on my porch. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And I drag it inside and I open it. Pat sent me his toy collection. Hand to God. He sent me his the Batmobile, Modoc, action figures, models. This whole, it was like, oh my God. God. And he just included a little note. Please be sure to take care of these. This is my actual collection. And so instead of having to look stuff up, I'm setting this toy on my desk and drawing the toy. It was amazing to me. It was absolutely amazing that there was like, oh, he needs reference. Let's get him reference. Here, take my collection. It's, Who does that? <laughs> it was amazing. And that was one. the one time I got balled out by somebody. I want to say it was McLaughlin. Is it Jim McLaughlin? I can't remember his name yeah. now. It was, it was Jim. I had been asked by him to do something for Inquest Gamer. It became uh, a relatively popular 
popular thing. I can't remember what they called them. They were duos or battles or whatever. And I would do the illustrations and this wonderful writer named Rick Swan would write the text and they would just give me a list. They want to see smog versus Puff the Magic Dragon. They want to see Robocop versus Boba Fett. And I remember that first one, there was Elric versus King Arthur, which I loved because I was able to use the comic book versions. So I had P. Craig Russell's Elric fighting Brian Bowen's King Arthur, and it was so much fun. And one of them, there was a character I'd never heard of. Uh, he was from the Donaldson novels. I can't even remember the guy's name. And I didn't know what he looked like. So I went to a local bookshop and I bought the paperback. So I had the art on the cover. And I'm talking to Jim. And I said, yeah, yeah, I didn't know what he looked like, but I went out and I bought the book. And you could feel the ice coming across the phone. You bought the book. Well, yeah, I didn't know what he looked like, but he's on the cover. You went out and bought the book. You spent your own money and bought the book. I was like, God, what did I do wrong? And I was like, yeah. And he says, Brian, when you need something, you tell us. We will get it for you. Don't go spending your money. I swear to God. It was like he was the big brother scolding me. <laughs> Don't oh. spend your money here in the arcade. Come over here. Yeah, that's the only time I got balled out. That is so wonderful to hear. Yeah. And he was like, no, don't you dare. We will send you what you need. Oh, that's so great. Now, the other thing is too, like you said, so the calendars, I'll just say personally for me, there were trading cards, there were comics, there were all these things that came in the poly bag. But for me, the calendar was the most exciting thing to look at each month. You're like, oh, what's going to be here? What's this trivia? What's the, like, and it was just so full of energy. But the other thing you got to start doing in a lot of the special issues and things like that were these comic strips. So like, for example, you got to do a four page J. ALA meets the Super Friends story that was just in issue 76 of Wizard. And I'm curious how those came together. Were you just given free reign to create those stories or did they give you scripts and you just adapted them kind of like the lists for the calendar? How did that go? Well, uh, for those of you uh, listening at home, I was just bowing to Adam because I'm so flattered that you even remember this stuff. And I'm still amazed that every once in a while, to this day, I'll meet somebody and they're like, oh my God, that was you? And then they tell me, I would always sit down with my son and we'd go through the calendar and we pulled them out and saved them. And I'm just, oh my God, this is wonderful. I didn't even pay you to do that. What's going on here? (laughs) And I believe it was the fact that I was doing the bump and buzz strip over at CBG that pretty much tip the scales. It's like, we should do that. Or, hey, I've got a great idea for something like that. Let's put Brian on it. And incidentally, the Spawn cartoon did get made. Yep. Um, it was called Little Spawnling, and it was following <laughs> Teeny Weeny Al Simmons in elementary school, and it was so much fun to do. And what would happen is they would give me a concept, and I would sketch it out, and I'd say, here's what I think should happen here, 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 and here. And then I'd bounce it off them, and invariably, or so it seemed, they would have some kind of input that always improved it that always spruced it up or added a little extra sparkle or something like this. When I first sent in the JLA Super Friends uh, spread, and it was a quadruple spread. Yeah, that was a long one. Yeah, it was a big one. And my little brother had some of those as seen on TV Whitman comics and they were the super friends. And so I pulled out and there was some ridiculous villain named Grax or something. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds just pathetic enough. And so I sent that in and I know I was working with Andrew on this one because I remember talking to him about this. And there's a point when this villain's got this ridiculous contraption machine and I know it's going to turn people into lollipops or some stupid Hanna-Barbera thing. Not that Hanna-Barbera is wonderful, but the villains <laughs> were always lame on that cartoon. And because they had rules, the villains couldn't be evil. They couldn't try to kill people and everything like that. So I just had the Martian Manhunter poke the guy in the head with his index finger and knock him out. And that was it. And Andrew said, no, 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 no. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be bigger than that. Can we do something that really just lays waste to this guy so that the Wonder Twins or whoever is shocked 
And so we came up with the idea that he shoots his heat vision at the weapon, just turns it into slag metal, and that's what splashes on the guy. And that was why the super friends were going into heart palpitations. And, oh my God, you actually <laughs> heard him. You know. And there was another thing that was all Andrews. He said, you know how they would stop in between the cartoon and give safety tips. If you have something caught in your eye, don't rub, you know, things like this. And he said, can you do the telephone, two cans of the string. And I said, oh my God, yes. And so I forget who was fighting who, but Superman stands in the foreground. See how these folks are communicating? You can communicate like this, you know, just <laughs> ridiculous stuff. And it, it was just marvelous. They just did such a glorious job. There was one point when the Zan and Jaina thing, you know, form of this, shape of that. And I think Zan became like an icicle or something like this. Andrew said, can we make it more ridiculous than that? Can he be like an ice egg beater? And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I love it. And so, you know, so he became the, you know, I think she was a gerbil and he was an egg beater and it just utterly, utterly useless. And my favorite line in that whole strip, I remember it to this day, is that Zan became a mud puddle and uh, Jada became, I think, a cockroach or a beetle or something. And that was going to somehow help send the Justice League back through some bizarre twisted battle science and it was like faster jana stroke stroke you know that i know i read that i was like how did they get that in there how did they let that pass <laughs> oh my god no they, they were in on it they were okay. in on it. many times when you thought oh my god i think i think briz crossed the line that wasn't me that wasn't me that was them saying no let's make it goofier <laughs> let's crank up the spaz factor here so you know, anytime it seemed to go off the rails it was not me it was them saying no let's make it bigger let's that's make awesome it Hey geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. If you haven't heard already, it's Smooth Sack Summer. When you're playing in the summer sun, make sure you're Manscaped from pubes to bum. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this is the summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh, dive headfirst into smooth sack summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code WIZARD20, which my cousin just told me he ordered as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the season, man, like they're saying. And you know who's the king of summertime manscaping, Michael? It's Namor, the (laughs) Submariner. His Atlantean Speedo leaves very little to the imagination, and dude always looks smooth when he's battling the villains of the Deep Blue Sea. Imperious Rex. Namor obviously hooked himself up with Manscaped Performance Package 4.0, and it's time you do the same. It has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming. Their Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to its advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch to engage travel lock. That's kind of cool. And gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for more precise shaves. I'll just tell you, Michael, like I busted out my equipment for the summertime. You know, it's getting 
hotter. I got to have less hair on the body, you know, just trying to keep it uh, nice and cool around these parts. I, I'm excited. Both of those pieces of equipment are just so easy to use. That's the best part. I don't have to like prep anything. I'm just like, nope, it's ready to go. It's a smooth experience all the way around. I got to say also the battery lasts a long time. Like if you charge this, it will last you several uses before you need to recharge it as well, which I find very interesting. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too? Mm -hmm. Each lake or shower, this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. <laughs> <laughs> and once you have the perfect haircut, you can use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness, even at the hottest summer barbecues. Most importantly, use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat with a soothing aloe vera formula. It's the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep looking good while smelling good. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers, which I wear quite often. They're very comfortable. And the Shed Travel Bag, wearing sandals with some nasty toenails during the summer months. Take a look at the Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. So with the Performance Package 4.0, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So how do you go from Imperious Rexy to Imperious Sexy? Go to Manscaped.com now. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. It's Smooth Sack Summer, geeks. Get on board or get left behind. My favorite of all of them that stands out, I've never forgotten it. And this was Andrew's idea. Trick or Treat at Castle Doom. I loved that. That was so much fun to do because we did a cutaway of the castle. And floor by floor, the different things that were going on. And I love the the bobbing for apples and Kristoff's brainwashing tub. Oh my God, I had so much fun driving that. And Andrew loved it. He absolutely loved it. He had nothing negative to say. And then he said, hey, can we add a list of safety tips? Because you never see a Halloween cartoon that doesn't say, you know, wear reflective material, bring a flashlight. And I said, oh my God, I love it. And so it was written like it was on an old scroll, like, you know, uh, an evil parchment or whatever. And it said, be sure to wear dark colors for lurking in the shadows you know so it was an anti-safety list but that one i absolutely love and i gotta say and i've said this to many people but now i can say it on a podcast to this day and i've been doing cartoons for must be over 30 years now the single best editors i have ever worked with are andrew Carden and joe yanarella i have never worked and i've worked with some great people but i have never ever worked with anybody as good as those guys they are the epitome of what an editor for a creative should be they give you the concept and they get the hell out of your way. And then you show them what you've done. Any input they have will always improve the piece. They are editorial gods. I'm not kidding. I cannot say enough good things about them. I could bore you for an hour and a half just about working with them alone. Well, and I'm curious, you know, you're talking about that, getting into the comics field for all these years. You're contributing to a comics magazine at this time, the biggest source for that news. Did you ever have ambitions to get into publishing a creator-owned book yourself? Say, hey, I got the wizard juice. Maybe we can make something happen. Did you oh, always. pursue that? Yeah, Always. Oh, God. Since I was in the sixth grade. 
I was, you know, drawing my own characters, meeting underdog for Pete's sake. And I still have my own characters and I'm working on those, but now it's no longer a case of, I have this wonderful little part-time job at a gas station and don't think, oh my God, he's pumping gas like Goober. No, 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 no. It's, it's a lovely little shop. And I love the people. I love the customers. It's a great job. I only work part-time and it covers all my bills. So that takes care of the rent, utilities, and everything else. So now instead of thinking, oh my God, I hope this proposal gets accepted. Now it's a case of, hey, it's the age of the internet, baby. I don't care who likes it. And I've got several comic projects going. Um, one of the characters that you can still see on my portfolio, we'll give you the address for that later, is Chicky. And it was based on a little plush toy that I had when I was a kid. And there was one and only one Chicky comic that saw print in the buyer's guide. Oh. And that was one of those things. One of the good things about working there is they often gave you carte blanche. There were very, very few times, and this wasn't until way later working there, that they said, no, don't do that. We won't print it. But I said, hey, I want to I want to drop Pumpkin Buzz for a few months, and I want to do this this hero. And it was Maggie Thompson I was talking to, and she said, well, is it comic related? And I said, yeah, he's, he's kind of like this offbeat superhero. And she said, oh, then go ahead. As long as it's comic related, I don't care. You know, and I just I just did it. And and that character is my baby. He's pretty much everything I want a superhero to be. And it's ironic because I always thought the hero I did would have tights and a cape and boots and the whole thing. No, he's just this little legless, super powered chicken. <laughs> and, and he it sounds so lame, but I absolutely adore him. The first six issues are already outlined. And I'm working on the artwork. And my friend Randall Kirby, a brilliant, brilliant cartoonist from Oregon, created a wonderful character named Flying Man. He's just, uh, I, he's another person I could brag about all day. I'm just I'm blessed to know him. And he said, hey, why don't you not start with the origin? That's what I was going to do. And he said, why don't you have a first story arc just so we can get to know him and see the villains and see what he's capable of? And then when we're thinking, wow, where did he come from? Then the second story arc be his origin. That's genius. And so that's what I'm doing. So those I'm going to put online, I don't know if it'll be a paper or if it's a case of like a Five Nights at Freddy's. You know, it's like, you like reading it for free? Here, buy this pillow. You know, so I, I have no idea how I'm going to approach that part. But now the important thing is getting the stories down and out where people can read them. Yeah, like we say, we'll, we'll talk about some more of these projects as we close out here. I do have to ask, though, obviously you're getting a lot of stuff in the mail. You're long distance from Congress, New York. But did you ever get a chance to visit the office in Congress? Did you ever make it out there? No, I never did. Um, it, was, it was quite the distance. Um, I would have loved to. I think I would have had a great time. But one of the things I remember is there was a big Wizard World convention. And Jim called me and said, hey, we want to have you as a guest of the con. You're part of Wizard Family. We'll want to have you there. And I was like, whoa, for real? I, I'm not that big part. And he says, no, but you're a fun part and you add a lot to it. We want to get you there. And it was in Chicago. And it's all fantastic. And he said, so what we're going to do, uh, we're going to foot the bill. You can drive there. And I thought, no, 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 no. I do not drive to Chicago. Every single time I've gone, there's always a traffic jam. I don't care if it's two in the morning, there's a freaking traffic jam. I despise driving to Chicago. And I said, you know, actually it would be cheaper to fly me there. Just, you know, right out of here, boom, hop over there. It's a 35-minute flight. I'm there. I can't even finish an issue of Captain America, and I'm there, and the whole thing. And there was dead silence on the other line. And I thought, well, have I got to convince him the tickets actually cost less? And then after a moment, he said, you uh, you have an airport there? It's like he thought I lived in the middle of a cow pasture. It's Michigan, right? So I have to shoo the chickens out of the way to get the mail. And I'm like, yes, yes, we have an international airport. KLM flies out of here for the love of Pete, man. Yes, we have an airport. He, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that we had an airport. It just totally blew his mind. It's like, yeah, yeah, we have we have an airport. <laughs> <laughs> 
being in proximity then to the wizard staff at a convention, they were very notorious for their hijinks at conventions, especially, but you know, Pat in the office always playing pranks. Were you a part of any of that? No, this is this is funny because I've heard that. I've heard those, and I just had to scratch my head and I'm like, does this only happen in the office? Like, oh god, they do it on the road too. Never, never encountered that. In fact, it's it was sort of the opposite with me. And I'm not sure if it's just the cartoons were fun and somehow they thought that meant I was endearing or what, but I will never forget this. And I've, I've worked for years and years and years as a youth pastor. And I've told this story at retreats because people talked about, get up and talk about what it's like to witness. And it's just like, oh God, do I have to? And I will never forget this. Doug Goldstein, just salt of the earth, man. He called me and we did a lot of work on sci-fi invasion and being power in power. And he, he just had his fingers in so many pies, multi-talented a great multitasker. And um, he contacted me, and I think it was a cartoon for Sci-Fi Invasion, and it was going to be a, a, a spoof on the X-Files. And I said, I'm, I'm down. What do you want to do? And he said that the idea was Scully and Mulder go into the FBI cafeteria, and working in the kitchen, they find God is working in the kitchen. And it's like, I thought you were the almighty. Oh, no, I'm doing pots and pans and the whole thing. And it was basically about finding God, the truth is out there and the whole thing, but he's just this loser, you know, basically one step down from a busboy. And I'm not one of the, you know, I'm a Christian, so God told me to hate you, you know, any of this nonsense. And I'm not a Bible thump or anything like that, but I was raised a good Catholic kid. The philosophy, I remember seeing a poster and it was hilarious. It said, every world philosophy taken from the phrase, shit happens. And the Catholic one was, if shit happens, it's your fault. So yeah, and that's so I immediately felt very uncomfortable with something that I thought was, you know, on the verge of being blasphemous. I could see how many people would think it was hilarious, but to me, it just gave me the creeps. And so I pitched a couple different ideas. And I said, well, what if, if we do this? What about if we do that? And he says, well, I'll take him to Pat. And I was like, Pat? And it was Pat's idea. Yeah. So I see you raising your eyebrows like, oh my God, it's Pat's idea. You do the idea. And so he came back and he said, no, Pat's really sold on this. And I was just like, Go. can I call you back? And so I simmered on it for a few hours and I thought, I'm not going to be one of those jerkwads that waits until the last second and then says, well, I didn't do it because blah, 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 blah. Let me read the commandments. So I called him back shortly after and I said, look, I, I hate to be that guy, but I really, really feel uncomfortable about this. It's just, you know, I wanted to tell you right now so you could get another artist, get somebody else to, to grab the baton. I didn't want to wait till the last minute, leave you in the lurch, but I really feel uncomfortable. It just gives me, it just does not sit right with me. I don't think I could do this with a clear conscience, you know, just because of how I was raised. And I was still going to church at the time and the whole thing. And he was very understanding. He said, okay, I never thought about that. And I asked, I said, do you and Pat have any, you know, any ties, any faith? And he said, no, we're both atheists, if I remember the story correctly. And I was like, ah, that explains a great deal. And I, I'm really sorry. I, I hate to do this to you, but I, I just, I don't feel right about it. And he said, okay. And I thought, well, that's the end of my career with Wizard. I'll never hear from them again. Phone rang the next morning. It was Doug. And he said, hey, about the sci-fi invasion cartoon. And I'm like, oh God, please don't try to talk me into this. And I said, the God thing? He says, no, 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 we scrapped that. We're doing something completely different. And it was a takeoff on the truth is out there. Everywhere Scully and Mulder went, they encountered science. So you're nodding. You remember the strip. Uh, yes, Thank I you. do. God love you. And they encountered all these different characters from science fiction, and they were too stupid to see what they were looking at. You know, it's like, oh, the truth is out there, but I wonder where, you know. And it yeah, was right funny. over their I'm shoulder, like, I yeah. Am, <laughs> I am on board. I'm down. And I don't know if this is true or not. I heard the second, third, fourth hand at a convention years later. So 
I think knowing the character of these people, knowing Pat and especially knowing Doug, I want to believe that this is true. But I heard someone had said, and I don't know if this was someone from the office or, you know, who was, they said, yeah, that guy who did the calendars, there was like one cartoon I think they wanted to do, but it made him feel uncomfortable. And so they said, hey, he's an easygoing guy. If it makes him feel uncomfortable, what would it do to the readers? Let's do something different. And I thought, no way, no way. And knowing who they are, I honestly think that that's probably what happened. They're probably like, okay, if, if, if he doesn't like it and he's, you know, he's a big goofball, it, it might upset other people too. Let's not do this. And I don't think they would have ever thought about that if they weren't the type of people they were. They could have just said, ah, piss on it, get another cartoonist. But they didn't. And that's just, this is the caliber of people I was working yeah. with. They were just amazing people. And I honestly believe that's what happened. I heard it, like I said, second, third, fourth hand, but I honestly believe considering who they are, I like to believe that's what happened. Well, and speaking of which, so you said you thought that might be the end of your relationship with Wizard, but what ultimately were the deciding factors to to move on from contributing to Wizard? What happened there? Oh, things just petered out. We started to see all new interests. We started to see a Twisted Toy Theater, which I believe was an impetus that eventually led to the insanely popular Robot Chicken. Right. Different artists were brought in. Uh, you know about the, the brilliant humorous and cartoonist, uh, Ryan Don Levy. He came in later on and, and he did some beautiful work for the magazine. And sometimes there were spreads that I knew I could have done. And I thought, oh, why didn't they call me for that? And I remember one time talking to one of the editors. And again, it could have been Andrew. It could have been Tom. It could have been Scott. I don't remember who it was. It might not have been Scott because I think he was gone at that point. He had gone to do like a sports magazine, I think. But regardless who it was I was talking to, I mentioned and I said, I hate to sound like an egotist, but I honestly think I could have done this better. <laughs> I said, I wish you would have called me for this. And the editor said, yeah, you know, I kind of wish we called you too. And I thought, why didn't you? And he said, we want to make sure everything looks fresh and new. And you were one of the visual cartoon faces of Wizard for such a long time. It now looks like we're doing this year what we did last year or words to that effect. And so it was a case of I was seeing less and less and less Wizard until I was seeing that at all. And I was doing lots of stuff with Doug at that point. In Power was the children's magazine, which was, like my folks would say, that was a rent getter. You do the job and get the rent money. That was it. It was it was kid stuff. It's like, I'm going to draw Banjo Rui, whoever the hell that is. You know? <laughs> and there was a kind of a knockoff of the Wizard calendar. But I would you know, draw pictures of Spice Girls or whatever the hell they wanted in there. I, I had no interest in it whatsoever. Conversely, Doug was also behind Beanie Power. It later became Bean Power, but Beanie Power there are few things on this planet as fun as drawing beanbags. <laughs> My God, I had so much fun with his job. And I, every now and then, the tone in his voice was just like, I am so tired. I am editing this magazine. And he'd send me, you know, you need to draw Liberty. And da, 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 da. I'm like, oh, I am there. Because there are all these wonderful, round, swoopy lines and squishy characters. And when they sit down, their bodies wrinkle. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I love this. And eventually, the Thai company was like, no, there's all these magazines making money off of us. So we couldn't say Beanie Babies anymore. We'd have to say Beanbag Friends or, you know, Bean Bean Friends or whatever the hell it was. They had a lawyer came. You have to change the name from Beanie Baby to Beanbag Collectible Product Item Toy or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> you know, something so we couldn't possibly get sued. And then, oh my gosh, then then the wheels came off because it was a case of we have to invent our own beanbag toys. And that was so much fun. We created just drawing after drawing after drawing after drawing. You could see that they were beanbag toys. They were clearly plushies, but they were not the ties. They didn't look anything like them. And we had a ball. I remember there was a, a content readers. They said you could have any kind of beanbag 
creature. What do you want? And they voted for an ant. I thought, okay, that's weird. I would have thought it would have been a bear or a kitten or something, but they wanted an ant. And they said, okay, Briz, you're up. Create a beanbag ant. And it was so much fun. And that thing was adorable. <laughs> no, it's, it's hilarious to me. You're the only wizard staffer we've ever spoken to who did not speak of bean power with derision. So that is amazing yeah, that see, you loved I, it. That was one of the things I could just hear how tired Doug was. It's like, I was a man who used to be doing sci-fi invasion while I'm doing bean <laughs> magazines. God, shoot me now. So yeah, I kind of hear that. And he, t- and a lot of times he was just like, okay, make the tagline this. I don't care. And he was just so exhausted. It was like, God, this like this poor man's being keel hauled by this magazine. And so I was like, I'm going to have the most fun so that God willing, every time he opens a package for me, he gets a grin because I know this is not his favorite job. <laughs> and he stretched the imagination and it's like, okay, here you go, Doug. I just had a party. I like it. You know, so I did run bag characters in fact there was um, a christmas thing where i needed to do gift tags and they said i don't care what you do they just have to be cute beanbag creatures and i'm like i am all over it and it was so much fun we did like nine or a dozen of them and i was i added holly berries and snow and snowflakes and there was one of a panda bear wrapping presents with a little penguin and just you know there was like a goose and a deer and and a puppy and they were singing carols and i had so much fun doing these i saved that artwork because they aren't trademark characters they weren't beanie babies they weren't anything i'm gonna color those and i'm gonna put them out probably my red bubble so you can buy them as stickers oh great because i know darn well people are gonna see those and say oh now brian the time has come this is a, a question we have to ask every wizard staff or everybody who contributed to the magazine. Get your opinion here. Garib Sheamus, cool or fool? You might be disappointed in my response to this. Garib Sheamus, cool or fool? I have no idea. I almost never got to work with the guy. I do know that he made damn sure I knew I was appreciated. And a lot of the other people did too. Uh, I'd be working with an editor. I know Tom did this a few times and some other people did. Christmas and I'd get a box like a dive of chocolates one time i got a cartman when you lifted him up he's like i'm not fat i'm getting in shape you know (laughs) and a couple different times i got more pieces of my artwork frame mounted under glass the original magic the gathering convention scavenger piece that one was in my studio for a long time i had to draw a company picnic once and so all the editors and they were playing with all different characters there could be someone from you know the doom video game and somebody else from spider-man comic or something whatever it was just a lot of fun and they sent me a wonderful frame version of that with notes that said hey thank you so much i met garib once count them once one time at a convention he was walking around with a jersey the bullpen got for him and across his shoulders it said the big cheese and he stopped just to tell me how glad he was that i was working with the magazine how much he enjoyed my work and i don't even remember the project now but it was something i think it was something involving bunk and buzz and i said i was thinking about pitching this to the buyer's guide since that's where buzz comes from and i pretty much knew they were going to shoot it down because it was a large project and they're like you get one page be happy and um i said i was wondering if i should run that by you first and you could see the wheels turning in his eyes and it took him like two seconds to say set up time talk to me first and unfortunately the project never took off we got caught up in other things and i was never able to do it i don't even remember what it was now so that tells you how important it was but the fact that that fast his response was no let me help you with that so it's hard for me to call him a fool and even though i I didn't know him that well my little limited encounters with him were very impressive oh well that's great to hear we love hearing that the framed art you know the version that was printed was sent to you i sent them the original art and i used a tissue paper overlay i put over the top and i put 
all the color notes on there so that people knew what to do. That, that in itself could take one to two hours. Wow. And that was at the infancy of computer coloring. Wow. I was blown away. I could do stuff like I draw a squiggly line behind Captain Marvel Jr. And I say, this is lightning. Please make it glow. And they could. And there was a, um, a Star Wars cantina scene I had to do. And it was so much fun. It was just filled with, you name it, Mystery Science Theater, Star Wars, Star Trek, X-Files. Everybody was in there. Babylon 5. I had so much fun. And the coloring on that was absolutely exceptional. There were a number of pieces where I contacted the editors and say, will you please give me the number of the colorist? I have to call and thank them. And one of them, in fact, that Star Wars piece, the cantina, science fiction cantina scene, I got a call from the colorist to verify the color of some of the characters. He says, okay, this guy down here, I can't remember the name of the, he looked like a big bruiser from Babylon 5. His head looked like a turtle shell. I can't remember the character's name, but he spoke very dignified. I, I was blown away. I thought he would talk like the thing and he was like a diplomat. And I had him arm wrestling a Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Jemadar. And uh, this guy called me, he said, yeah, the guy next to, and he named the character. I don't know what the character's name was. He says, who's, who's this he's fighting? Who's, who's this he's arm wrestling? And I said, oh, that is a gem Hadar from Deep Space Nine. He said, okay, I don't know them. And I said, okay, the, the skin is almost reptilian, but it's a chalky, chalky white. The uniforms are black, but you can see I've left highlights. Go with a purple. That'll read as black. And he's like, oh, man, thank you. But the fact that he called me and asked. You know, other people would be like, ah, piss on it. It's pink and brown, you know, and just take a stab. And these these people just blew me away. So I always gave them the color overlays. They would send me the art back. Oh, okay. And there were times when people were like, you know, I collect original art. Do you still have this? Yeah, whatever, fine, have it. You know, I don't know, 10 bucks, I'll take it. And I photocopied a lot of the stuff for myself. Also, if anything went wrong in transit, I would have a backup. But I still have a lot, I mean, a lot of the artwork black and white just because they're it's such fond memories for me I to hang bet. Those. the excitement that you have the question and you haven't gotten to it yet okay why don't you ask yourself the question you're so excited <laughs> about it and, and then let's let's get into it here as we close out because you, you sent me the list and the list is yeah. wonderful these were all great questions was there ever a gag you were able to quote sneak past the censors unquote so to speak or have an idea that was vetoed no not in wizard oh but there was an episode of Bumpkin Buzz, and you know he was a self-parody. So he drew cartoons just like I drew cartoons. So the first panel of this strip, whichever one it was, he's sitting at his desk. And right next to his desk is a side table that's got, you know, a little jar with pens in it and brushes and, you know, paper, things like that. Pinned to the front of it, so it faces the reader, is a small calendar. You can just see with the little squares, it's the days of the week calendar. Directly above it, on top of this table, I drew a wizard's hat. Big, dark wizard's hat with stars on it. Wizard calendar. I knew the editor who had talked to me on that one phone call, that infamous phone call, was going to see that strip. That was my middle finger to that editor. Wizard calendar, how do you like my real job, bitch? You know, that was, <laughs> and I know damn well, I know damn well they saw that, and I know they knew what it meant, but it wasn't caustic. There was no reason to say take it out, and they just had to suffer and let the steam come out their ears as they saw it. That is amazing. Wow, that is the artist's revenge, for sure. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So as we close out here, I just want to ask, what do you think is the legacy of Wizard Magazine 30 years later now? Like, it just as you look back for you and what you've heard over the decades, like, what do you think the Wizard experience could be encapsulated as? You know, it's funny. When, when I was going over that question you sent me 
previously, and I thought the legacy is like, I don't know if there is one. That was my first thought. Because I remember as they got towards the end, and like I said, you know, I'm doing bean power and in power, and even that faded away. There was a whole new staff. Uh, a lot of the other guys had gone on to do, oh my gosh, you know, Robot Chicken. And, you know, I know Doug and Matt worked on that. And Andrew went on to do different things. And um, I think Brian Cunningham was an editor at DC. And, and all these people were a joy to work with. And so it's it was it, it sounded almost like the interns was like, here, you're hired. You're an editor now. They didn't know what they were doing. And I don't remember who told me this story, but the kids were panicking about we've got to have this artwork done and it's got to be done in, you know, in a couple of days. How the hell are we going to do this? And Joe Yannarelli was watching him and said, guys, why don't you just call Brian Ahern? And evidently they looked at him and said, who's that? They had no idea who I was. No concept whatsoever. In fact, at that point, some of them may never have seen the calendars. This is years later. So my first thought was there isn't a legacy. But then I thought, no, there most definitely is. And it's not the magazine. It's the people. That's the legacy, the, the joy and the fun and the energy and even the moments of frustration. I remember one time FedEx dropped one of my boxes and it's like, oh, we'll ship that later. And I was like, what? And I was on the phone with Tom and he's like, it does me no good to know where it's sitting, Brian. You know. And so even all of that, the relationships and the friendships, this is something we've taken with us. And you know, Andrew, Doug and Matt Seinreich and Brian. And so the legacy is not the pages, not the ink, not the articles, not the cartoons. It's the people. People who were involved and affected and whose lives were changed and are now taking that and affecting other lives positively. That's the legacy. The legacy is the people, you know, and it's so many amazing things. I got to work with Dee Snyder because of Wizard, <laughs> believe it or not. It was just like, whoa. So yeah, you, you know, you can't top that. The legacy is the, the creative minds, not just what they created. I mean, it's a nice combination of both, but it was the wonderful, wonderful people that made that what it was. Yeah, and speaking of dealing with D. Snyder and all of that, so having been published in Wizard, what future opportunities did that create for you? And what have you ended up doing? Where can people find your work now? Well, it's it's funny because I ended up branching off into so many different things. Um, my mom used to tell me there was like a black cloud hanging over me. Um, my younger brother is, is a brilliant uh, professor of theater down in Florida now. And he's toured the world twice with different performing groups. He worked at Disney. He worked at Universal Studio Florida. And he was so good training characters. They had him rewrite the manual. And so she used to say, Brian, I swear your brother could fall into a barrel of, of poop and come out smelling like a rose and you just can't rake. For instance, I was going to do a series and be like a six or seven an issue series who's going to bring back Rom Space Night oh. and yeah God I worshipped Rom Space Night oh my God Bill and Sal my heroes and eventually there was talk that somebody else and, and sure enough years later IDW took it on so I created an entirely different character anyone who knew would be like this guy was influenced by Bill and Sal and I got to talking to Jim Valentino because I got connected through Wizard, if memory serves me. And I kept calling him Mr. Valentino. And he was like, he was like, Brian, Brian, it's Jim. It's Jim. You know, just very, very down to earth and just very, very approachable. And so he says, do this thing up, send it to me. And I did. And I sent it off. And I know very well this was 2001. I will never forget this was 2001. And uh, I sent it off to him. And I didn't hear anything. And I didn't hear anything. And I didn't hear anything. And... I finally talked to him beginning of October that year. And he was like a completely different person. And he was like, yeah, that's not going to fly. Yeah, the Robotech thing. Uh, it was ROM. Yeah, whatever. It's not going to Whoa, what the fuck? And then I calculated, okay, I sent it here. I sent it this mail. It landed on his desk September 11th. I kid you not. I, I added it all up. And I was like, son of a bitch. He got it when the towers fell. I wouldn't want to do anything that landed on that day. I don't care. It was my mother's birthday. Screw you, mom. You know, it was just, yeah. So stuff like that kept happening. And then I just thought, well, poo-poo on that. And so I started a YouTube channel 
it ran for eight years and had more than 500 videos. And it only occasionally talked about my cartoons. It was when I became a board certified hypnotist and I did comedy hypnosis and it opened an entirely new world. A couple of years ago, I was the keynote speaker at HypnoCon in San Francisco for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. And I still do performances. Um, the company I work for, uh, the Merle Boost is uh, a portion of the BP gas station chain. Wonderful people, family owned. And uh, this is twice now they've hired me to be the entertainment at their Christmas party. <laughs> and so I do all that. And then I'm still writing and such, um, still doing the cartoons on my own. Huge fan of the Teen Wolf series. Don't watch the new movie. It's poo-poo. But the, the six seasons are absolutely fantastic. And I ended up writing a fan fiction story. It was going to be like 50 pages or so. And I was going to post it online. This will hold us over till season five. It became a 534 page novel. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I printed it out. I yeah, I can hand that bitch out like candy. I can, I sent it to the actors. I don't know if they ever got them, but I still have friends. Oh my God, I read your novel, Brian. Oh my God. I just have never stopped creating. So YouTube axed my channel, unfortunately, during what they called the ad apocalypse. It was like, mm -hmm. we're not making money off of this. He's gone. It's like, what the heck? We sent you all kinds of warnings. No, you didn't. You just pulled the plug, people. And for some reason, Patreon just took off. So my videos and my cartoons are on Patreon. And I thought the pandemic would kill my videos. It's like, how do I hypnotize somebody if I can't get near them? And suddenly people were contacting me. Oh my God, I can finally get hypnotized over Skype because I'm in Scotland. I'm in England. I'm in Wisconsin. I'm in Florida. Oh my God, I'm in Taiwan. I always wanted to be hypnotized by your channel. Now we can do it. And all of a sudden I've got these people coming out of the woodwork to be hypnotized. And a lot of them are like, well, can I dress up like Pumpkin Buzz? You know, can I wear my Spider-Man costumes? Go for it, dude. You know, so the videos and the cartoons are still on my Patreon, which is just Brizzy Comics. And there's a wonderful online service called CarbonMade.com. And I have a portfolio, Brizzy Comics on CarbonMade. And you can read the entire issue of Chicky on CarbonMade. That first one that we saw print in the CBG is up there. So you, awesome. you can still find me. You can still find me. And if all goes well over the next couple of years, you're not going to be able to get away from me. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be Robert Kirkman, you know. <laughs> No, I'm ubiquitous, but novel about my dog. I've got the young adult novel series about a teenage werewolf. Yes, I love Teen Wolves. The Cheeky Comic. I'm writing a Halloween novella, which if I don't tighten it up, is going to be another novel. I'm having no end of fun with it. It's called Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater. And underneath is a spooky Halloween story for grownups. I've been so involved in the story and having such a good time with it that some evil demon on my shoulder said, illustrate it illustrate it so there's going to be illustration plates throughout and i thought well, there's gonna be like half a dozen that's it so we have a dozen illustrations and i'm done gosh this scene would look great. okay seven ten twelve fifteen and no I got more another you know? idea and, yeah i gotta put them and i'm down. designing the cover too it's it, it's really cool it's like a love story between primary character peter who is addicted to all things pumpkin spice <laughs> and he believes that his best buddy who he's been crushing on and never had the nerve to say this left town the previous halloween without a word to anyone and come to find out and this we find out at the very beginning so no spoilers here there was uh, this marionette peter Pumpkinhead. it turns out there is no puppet. His best buddy, Adrian, took on the role. He thought he was a puppeteer. Sally's an actual witch. He actually became Pumpkin Hat. Oh. And so now he's finding out right at the beginning of the story, why did this guy that he adored take off? 
And so it leads to all these different things. I know I know it sounds like I'm being braggadocious, but I mean, it's wonderful fun writing it. I'm having such a great time. Sure. I can't stop. I do not do well with stagnation. I have to keep working. I just absolutely love it. I had friends come over one time. And it's like, we decided you needed a break. This is my break. Get off my porch. You know, <laughs> stuff like So if everybody wants to get connected with you on social media, is it just Brizzy Comics everywhere? Pretty much. It's one Z, B-R-I-Z-Y, C-O-M-I-C-S, all one word. I've had so many people wind up on other places like, this isn't you. And it's like, you used two Zs, didn't you? you know? <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, I got to tell you, it has been such a joy to find the person that brought so much excitement and energy to the magazine lives that way, that that is your persona. That is who you are. So it, it just it reflects 100% your work. And so it's been wonderful to reminisce with you. Glad Wizard was such a good experience for you and the, that you were one of the people, I'm sure, that brightened everybody else's day at the staff there as so. well. So that is just so kind and flattering i really appreciate it. i could talk to you all day i think so you know it's like hour 12 of the brizzy podcast we can't get him to shut up you know? <laughs> thanks right. for the invite this has been a joy this has been a presentation of the retro network